As we prepare to hear our scripture reading this morning, uh, we continue in the narrative lectionary. And last week, uh, we were in the wilderness with the Hebrew people as God provided them with manna in the desert. Uh, they stayed in the wilderness for some 40 years, during which time they received the Ten Commandments. And at the end of the 40 years, they finally entered uh, the Promised Land. Uh, they crossed the Jordan, they entered the land of the Canaanites, uh, took it over, uh, and essentially became an established people. And so the question for them becomes now, how do they live faithfully as the people of God in this new land of plenty? Well, during this time, the people of Israel were basically uh, affiliated in sort of loose tribal groups. And uh, things would be fine for a while, and then they would sort of turn away from God, and uh, another people would come in and conquer them. They would cry out. God would rescue them and raise up a judge. And uh, then the judge would sort of restore order, and then basically the same pattern would just happen again. They would fall away, cry out, uh, God would help restore them, and this pattern just continued over and over. And this is what's recorded in the book of Judges. Well, at the very end of the book of Judges, it basically says um, there was no king, and so the people did what was right in their own eyes. And it's sort of recorded as a time of kind of lawlessness and chaos. Well, that brings us to where we are today uh, in the book of Samuel, because Samuel uh, comes in as essentially the last judge of Israel and will help shift um, the people of Israel into a monarchy. And Samuel will go on to anoint uh, Saul and then David as the kings. Now, Samuel is important for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is because of his mother, Hannah, whose story we heard last year. And Hannah was a woman, a barren woman, who came to the temple, prayed fervently for a child, really kept the faith in a time of uh, chaos, and was granted a child. And she, um, when she was pregnant, sang this uh, beautiful song, uh, the echoes of which are in Mary's Magnificat. And so after uh, Samuel was born, um, she brought Samuel to the temple and basically dedicated him to God uh, and had him live in the temple. So there's some parallels between uh, Mary and Jesus and Hannah and Samuel. And then secondly, Samuel is important because God really uses Samuel as a changing of the guard. And what we're going to hear in our story today is that when um, Samuel is in the temple, he is uh, really raised by Eli, who is the priest of the temple. And Eli has two sons of his own who uh, basically have become corrupt. And so um, God raises Samuel up as a prophet and as a leader who will help God's people and God's religious uh, system return to better ways. So let us listen for the word of God. Our reading today is from 1 Samuel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. 
And he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again. Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, Here I am. Eli said, What was it that God told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that God told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then Eli said, It is the Lord. Let God do what seems good to God. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for God revealed God's self to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Will you join me in prayer? O gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his book, Across That Bridge, A Vision for Change and the Future of America, the late congressman and civil rights leader, John Lewis, um, writes about seven key themes or ideas that he sees are, that are necessary for the transformation of our hearts and of the world. And one of these is truth. We must learn how to seek, speak, and hear the truth. Truth, he says, is a powerful force. You cannot erase the truth. You cannot whitewash the truth. It's bigger than the sum of us all. And it's only in sharing the truth, the truth of one experiences, the truth that we are all 
interrelated, the truth that we are created in love, that we can build a better society. In this meditation, which he writes, he says, for dreamers young and ever young who want to build a better future, he says that truth is what gives meaning to action. It mandates, quote, constant learning, evaluation, self-criticism, and constantly rejuvenated comprehension of a movement's core principles. In other words, we always have to be seeking the truth, and we have to speak the truth, especially when we see others obscuring it. We have to speak out and speak truth to the powers that be. Well, our story this morning is in many ways about truth, speaking it, hearing it, and acting on it. The leadership in the story this morning, the, the temple leaders, Eli and his sons, have basically gone astray. They have forgotten their core principles of right worship, of caring for the least and the lost and the marginalized. And Eli's sons in particular have become quite corrupt, stealing from the offerings at the temple, uh, raping the women who came to worship at the temple. And God sees it. God sees the truth of what's going on, and God does not like it one bit. And so before the part we read this morning, God came to Eli and said, you have to change the ways of your sons. Uh, Eli tried to tell them not to do it anymore, but they didn't listen. So God sent another prophet that says, you have to change this because this is, this is, this is not okay, and uh, basically destruction is going to come to your household if this continues. And it still doesn't change. And so now we get the story of Samuel. Um, we heard this story that God calls to Samuel, and the, and the whole reading even starts by saying that the, the voice of God hadn't been heard in a while. It was sort of dry spiritual times. And yet now God's voice comes to Samuel, 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 three times. Uh, God calls Samuel. Each time Samuel comes running into Eli, he doesn't know it's God. He comes into Eli and says, here I am. And finally, on the third time, Eli says, oh, it might be God. So go back, and if the voice calls again, say, speak for your servant is listening. And so that's what Samuel does. And usually, when we read the story, it stops there. And it's a beautiful story about how God calls young people and how... Uh, intergenerational relationships help us discern, and that's all true. Those are, those are true. But when we continue the story and read what actually God spoke to Samuel, the story takes on new meaning. Because what God does is come to Samuel and basically tells him that Eli and his sons have gone too far astray. The corruption is too much, that punishment will is come, and it, they've gone too far, and there's no making up for it. Now Samuel bears this truth. And the next morning, when Eli comes in, Eli says, tell me what God said. And of course, Samuel is afraid to tell him. But he takes the risk, and he tells him the truth. And Eli is able to hear the truth. And the truth is that God longs for a different way of being in the world. Different leadership, different dreams for what the world can be, what this temple institution can be. 
And so through Samuel, God challenges the, sh the shortcomings of this institution and tries to open it up to a different future, a different leader. That leader will be Samuel, who will become the, the priest in charge. But it's to build a world where there is more justice and more care for those on the margins. In this story, it's not a critique of the culture. It's not a critique of the people coming in to worship or those outside the community. It's a critique of the institution itself. And so sometimes the call that we get is a call to critique the very institutions that we love, the very people that we love. Because we have to do it, we have to say it, and we have to hear it in order to open up to new possibilities, to new ways of flourishing, to new ways of living out how God wants us to live. Now, lest we think this is a story just for long ago, we know that it is a story that is true today. That as much as, or as easy it is to kind of critique out there, uh, to critique the culture, to critique the government, to critique others. The church has been complicit in all kinds of corrupt things, all kinds of oppressive structures. And the church, while there's lots of good about it, there's also been a lot of ways that we have uh, lost sight of our core principles of love or justice, or that we have been misguided and have ended up hurting the least and the lost and those on the margins. And so the question becomes, and what truths need to be told today about the church? What truths need to be heard today about the church? What are the ways that God is speaking to us that we may speak truth to power, the power of our own institution, our own faith, our own leadership, of which I am one? What are the things that we need to hear? And what are our core principles as a church that, like John Lewis says, we need to reevaluate and self-criticize and make sure we are aligned in the best way that we can be? This is not just a story of long ago. This is a story of today. And there are uh, efforts for truth-telling that are taking place right now, even right here in our Central Pacific Conference. One of them is truth-telling around gender equity and the fact that sexism and uh, patriarchy and misogyny are alive and well in our church. Uh, they're alive and well here at Lake Oswego UCC, alive and well at the conference level and denominational level in the United Church of Christ, and they are alive and well in the church universal. And so a couple years ago, in response uh, or in tandem with the Me Too movement, and uh, with some of the things that were happening in, in the national level around uh, just uh, malignment against women. Um, our Central Pacific Conference created a gender equity resolution that called for churches to examine the sexism in the church and to do truth-telling about the experience of women in the church, women clergy, uh, women leaders, and non-binary clergy, non-binary leaders. And so Liz Durant, who's a member of this church and at the time was the um, co-chair of Justice and Witness Ministries, um, put together a powerful testimony about this gender equity resolution and invited 
uh, the sharing of stories. And so our hope as a church this year is that we can listen to that together and do some truth telling around uh, gender equity and how it's needed here in the church. Another area where there is more truth-telling going on right now is around the treatment of indigenous persons. This past Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day, a day when we remember and celebrate and honor uh, the first peoples of this nation. And as we know, there was a massive genocide when white European settlers arrived in this land, land that wasn't empty, that was already occupied. And it was fueled by the doctrine of discovery, which was created and promulgated by the church. Uh, the doctrine of discovery came out of a, a palpable bull in 1493 by Pope Alexander VI. And what it said is that any land not inhabited by Christians was available to be discovered claimed and exploited by Christian rulers and declared that the, quote, the Catholic faith and the Christian religion uh, be exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of souls be cared for and that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. This doctrine of discovery, it became the basis of all European claims in the Americas, as well as the foundation for the United States Western Conquest, better, better known as Manifest Destiny. And it was our congregational forebears that came to New England that, that brought this. They were steeped in this doctrine and brought it with them, right? It, it drew from the, uh, the Great Commission where Jesus says, go out and baptize all nations. It drew from this idea of the, of the Hebrew people getting a promised land and they took over the land of the Canaanites so we could conquer the native people here. Even in Oregon, uh, this doctrine of discovery took root. Um, the second nationwide Indian school was created in Forest Grove with the support of Pacific University and the Congregational Mission Society. And it was there from about 1880 to 1885 that over 300 children were brought and stripped of their native identities and language and culture. And this doctrine of discovery has been invoked time and time again throughout our nation's history to um, to, to uh, basically push Native people off the land to justify uh, stealing the land and stealing their identity. And even as recently as uh, 2006, the Oneida Nation sued the United States. Uh, they had bought some property that was in their, their reservation borders and they uh, tried to ask that they would not have to pay property taxes on it. And the Supreme Court said no and invoked the doctrine of discovery. And it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said that the tribe was, quote, precluded from rekindling embers of sovereignty that long ago grew cold. There is work that our church needs to do to repudiate this doctrine of discovery, to hear the truth about how this doctrine of discovery has hurt so many people, um, and to work for repair and reconciliation with our indigenous siblings. And this is something that our church is working on through our reckoning with racism cohort. We're looking at our land story that was originally the Tualatin Kayapulians and how can we um, begin to repair uh, the damage that was done? And how can we rethink about our land and what do we do with our land uh, with this knowledge? 
The doctrine of discovery didn't just affect people, it did also affect the land itself because it was a way to think about um, how we treat the land as something to be conquered and subdued. And uh, the church condoned that, right? And our, our use and abuse and conquest of its resources. And we know that's had devastating effects on our planet. And so today, that's another way that, that there is truth telling going on, right? Around the environment. And we have young people, especially, who are crying out. The Greta Thunbergs and also young people, even within our own congregation, working for environmental justice, calling out that the system needs to change, that we have to live in a different way, that we've too long turned a blind eye, uh, knowing that it wasn't working, but not doing anything about it. And so there is work for us to do. There is work for us to do in truth telling and truth hearing if we want to build a world of more hope and justice and compassion. And that is what we are being called into. I think there are ways that we are like Samuel, that we are uh, finding our voices and learning how to, to cry out and call out and, and um, call to task the powers that be. But there are also ways that we are Eli, that we have been complicit, that we need to listen to the voices of others crying out to us. And so what I hear in this story is really an invitation uh, to hear that call of God, to deeper seeking of truth, deeper speaking of truth, deeper hearing of truth, so that we can act in a new way and realign ourselves with the love and the justice that we know God calls us to. So my hope for us as we move through our year of discernment is that we may listen for how God is calling us into deeper truth telling and deeper truth hearing so that we can live into the new ways that God is calling us. This is work that we will do together. Uh, it is not work that just Samuel did or just Eli did. They, they work together and so we'll be working together to listen for God. But may we be open to how God calls to us. And may we have courage to speak and act for more justice and peace for all. Amen.